I want to welcome everyone to the LSE's online events platform. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and director of the U.S. Center at the LSE, which is hosting tonight's event. Tonight's roundtable is part of the U.S. Center's Fallon Family Lecture Series, which is made possible by the generosity of the John and Amy Fallon Foundation. Well, yesterday was a pretty remarkable day in the United States, one full of hope, promise, and poetry, but also a deep awareness of the great challenges that the United States faces. Indeed, few presidents have been dealt a more difficult political hand than the one Joe Biden now holds. He takes on the job at a time when the country is reeling from a pandemic that has taken over 400,000 lives and racked the economy. The country is deeply divided and polarized. In taking the oath of office, President Biden called on Americans to restore mutual respect to public life, to end what he called this uncivil war that has pitted Americans against one another and took sinister form on January 6th when angry far-right extremists assaulted the Capitol and tried to disrupt the peaceful transition of power. While we can all take some comfort in the fact that they failed, the sheer audacity of the attack underscores just how deep a hole the United States finds itself in today. What can we realistically expect from the Biden administration over the next four years? What issues will get pride of place and what are the main obstacles that Biden faces in moving the country forward? How will America's 46th president balance the challenges that America faces at home with the many it confronts abroad? Biden said yesterday that he intends to re-engage internationally. Well, what exactly does that mean given the harsh realities and the pressing needs that he faces at home? These are big, they're difficult questions, but fortunately we have a group of truly distinguished analysts of the American political scene to help us begin to make sense of the moment that we're in, the possibilities and the risks that it poses for America, and what we might expect from the Biden administration in the weeks and the months and the years ahead. We really could not be more fortunate to have this lineup of speakers. Joining me on the panel today in alphabetical order are Professor Desmond King, the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of American Government and Professorial Fellow at Nuffield College, Oxford University. Mark Landler, the London Bureau Chief of the New York Times. Professor Paula McLean, the James B. Duke Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Vice Provost for Graduate Education at Duke University. Professor Theta Scotchpole, the Victor S. Thomas Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University. Welcome to all of you and thank you very much for joining us today. It's great to have you on the platform and I can assure you that there are gonna be a lot of folks watching here who are eager to hear what you have to say. Um, I know that we have hundreds on the platform the, this evening. The number will only go up and many more uh, will be with us on Facebook. Before we get down to business, let me just say a few words about tonight's format. To get us started, I've asked each of our panelists to take five minutes to share some initial thoughts and reflections 
On the biggest challenge that they see facing the United States and what President Biden can do about it. And we're gonna go in the following order. We're gonna start with Theta, then I'll turn to Mark and Paula, and then Des will round it out. We've left plenty of time for um, audience questions. So please send your questions to us via the Q&A function on Zoom. And please be sure to include your name and affiliation so I can mention that when I put the questions to our panelists. Now, normally at this point, I would ask all of you in the audience to put your hands together to give the panelists a warm LSE welcome. This of course is not possible tonight. So in lieu of applause, I encourage you to pose your questions to the panelists in the Q&A uh, period, to put them into the Q&A function. And with that, let me turn to our first speaker, Professor Theta Scotchpole. Theta, good to have you back at the LSE. The platform is yours. It's so nice to be here, an honor, and with, with my fellow panelists. Um, the United States is passing through one of the major pivots in our history. The first, of course, was our break from, uh, from the mother country, where I'm speaking tonight. Uh, the next was the Civil War of the 1860s. Uh, where um, the country literally broke apart and, and fought its greatest war about itself. I would argue that the civil rights era of the 1960s, when finally African-Americans uh, regained uh, rights to vote and participate in civil and political life in a, in a formally uh, full way, although that is not fully realized. And then this period, uh, the election that Proceeded yesterday's inauguration saw the greatest turnout of eligible American voters in more than a hundred years, which means that both the supporters of Donald Trump, who represents middle class forces, white forces, I would argue, who want to refuse to enter a new era of multi ethnic and outward looking America. Uh, turned out in large numbers, and it simply turned out as it did for Joe Biden because even more Americans, a multiracial coalition, and a coalition that crucially includes middle-class whites who do want to embrace uh, a multi-ethnic democratic future, um, barely won in the key states in an electoral college, which gives a built-in advantage that is going to persist to the forces of reaction. The greatest challenge that uh, Joe Biden as president and Kamala Harris vice president and the Democrats who barely control the agenda in the US Senate and House face is exactly what President Joe Biden and Kamala Harris ran the election on. They have to address the raging pandemic in the United States, deliver uh, vaccinations, and deliver economic relief and a boost, particularly to the urban working people, uh, disproportionately black and brown, who have been so hard hit by the economic side effects of this pandemic. They have to do it quickly, and yet they don't fully control the flow of resources 
particularly fiscal resources that will be needed to mount this effort in the next half year to full year. That's all the time they have, I think, to deliver uh, on a redistributive repair of the direct and indirect effects of this pandemic. And as they proceed, they will be facing a fractionated Republican Party where the dominant factions are still very wedded to the uh, authoritarian, sometimes violent, and certainly exclusionary ethno-nationalist vision that Donald Trump embodied. Uh, so they're going to be dealing with a fractionated Republican Party whose leaders that might be willing to compromise are going to feel the fire from their right. Uh, the threat of authoritarian reaction in the United States will persist at least through the next decade. Thank you, Theda. Um, that was a terrific set of opening comments, um, and we're going to want to return to some of the issues that you've raised here, um, especially I think um, about uh, thinking about the Republican Party going forward. We'll have time to come back to that. Mark, I wanna turn to you and, and get your thoughts. Here you are, you've got a London perch for the New York Times, the international beat. How does it look to you over here? Well, first of all, Peter, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, always a kick to be on such a distinguished panel. Um, I guess I would, would make a few observations. Uh, the first is that, as you pointed out, Joe Biden did make sure to say the world is watching uh, and said he hoped to re-engage with the world in his inaugural address. But it's also worth pointing out that his... Uh, remarks on the U.S.'s role in the world uh, amounted to a single paragraph in a 25-minute address, which understandably was dominated by the themes of unity and the you know, prevailing of democracy and the need to put domestic divisions behind us. So that, that goes to show what the very early focus of this administration necessarily will be on. It'll be on domestic affairs. And that isn't altogether unusual. That was characteristic of Barack Obama in the first 100 days of his administration. Um, but I do think that Joe Biden meant what he said. And by instinct, by temperament, and by experience, he is a, a politician who wants to play a role on the world stage. And I think that after some period of time, uh, when he uh, has delivered 100 million doses of the vaccine uh, and addressed some of these absolutely burning problems at home, we will see him uh, try to restore a more traditional American role in the world. Uh, you know, and he'll have his work cut out for him. I think that there was a lot of hope outside the U.S. at, at the images yesterday, um, but underlying it, I think, was a deep sense of uh, anxiety about whether the United States is um, politically, economically, socially equipped uh, to play much of a strong role overseas. Um, there is a strong feeling, you hear it from a lot of commentators, that the U.S. needs to get its domestic house in order before it can hope to play a vigorous role overseas. And, and 
I happen to think the two things aren't mutually exclusive. I think you can begin to restore your place overseas, even as you work on uh, the rebuilding at home. Uh, but we'll see how it plays out. As to the question of the greatest challenge in the, in the foreign policy sphere, I'll limit myself to that. Um, Donald Trump's America first policy, uh, his capricious style, uh, his lack of a coherent uh, framework for foreign policy, his transactional approach, his uh, abuse of allies, uh, his uh, coddling of dictators, all of that leaves Joe Biden with a lot of repair work. I think uh, perhaps to boil it down, the big thing he needs to do is to persuade nations that have worked with the United States, have relied on the United States for decades, that the U.S. is still a credible partner and leader. Uh, so I think that you'll see him move most quickly in the area of rebuilding the transatlantic alliance. Uh, we can talk later about the role the UK plays in that. I don't take a particularly pessimistic view of the relations between the US and the UK. Um, I think then beyond that, what he needs to do is, uh, is contend with the greatest bilateral challenge the US faces in the world, which is China. And uh, the Chinese have uh, benefited actually greatly from the pandemic. Um, their economy is growing once again at a healthy clip. Um, they've actually increased uh, their influence around the world despite the, the initial blowback they suffered from the pandemic and their own role in uh, concealing it in the early days. Uh, and so China, if anything, is a greater, a more formidable challenge for the United States, uh, certainly than it was the last time Joe Biden was was working in the White House thinking about these issues. So I think in order, uh, you'll see him try to repair alliances, uh, reassure the Europeans, try to get them on side as much as possible. We can get into the details of what's feasible and, and what may not be feasible. Uh, and then beyond that, I think he needs to decide uh, how he wants to stake out his position vis-a-vis -vis China. Uh, Donald Trump, um, I would argue, didn't do everything wrong with China. Uh, his policy was uh, chaotic in some ways, but he did put trade front and center in a way with China that no previous administration had done. Um, I think Joe Biden will have to decide how he wants to define the framework of US-China relations. And so those are probably the two big foreign challenges, but they grow directly out of the domestic challenges. Thanks, that's a terrific set uh, kind of uh, sketch of uh, the international landscape. Uh, confronting and facing Biden. Uh, I know there's going to be a lot of questions on this. We will want to return to the UK and the implications of Bi the Biden presidency for the UK. But I would like to turn right now to, to Paula. So Paula, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have been in office for, well, let's look at it, just a little over 24 hours. So what's your take? Where do you first come of all, First of all, Peter, thank you very much for inviting me to participate. Um, I'm sorry we're not doing this in person, but, you know, such is, such is the times. Mm -hmm. You know, for, for at least half of the country yesterday and maybe even more, the inauguration of Joe Biden as president and Kamala Harris as vice president represented the lifting of a cloud of hate, misery, disdain for democracy and the rule of law that had seeped into the American political system. And, but despite the uplifting events, 
there are, as the young poet Amanda Gorman said, the hill we climb. Questions of race and racial justice were themes in Biden's inaugural address. Biden had several phrases that echoed this theme. He quote, a, a cry for racial justice some 400 years in the making moves us. The dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. A cry that can't be any more desperate or any more clear. And now arise political extremism, white supremacy, domestic terrorism that we must confront and we will defeat. After the insurrection of January 6, these are words the nation needed to hear, but they are goals that will be difficult to achieve as the United States has been struggling to achieve these things for centuries. And as Eric Fromer reminds us, equality for some often involves inequality for many others. The equality of white men has historically rested on the subordination of non-whites and women. And the events of January 6th, which we should have predicted, but data prior to, prior to the election showed that the corrosive effect of all of the hatred had already taken hold, especially among Americans of color. A survey conducted by Axios Ipost before the election, Americans of color were disproportionately more likely than white Americans to express fear that they may be threatened by physical violence or armed militias at their local polling place. While only 19% of white respondents expressed this concern, a third of black, a third of Latinos, and a third of Asian Americans were concerned about physical threat of violence if they went to vote. This is the first time that I can remember since the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s that black citizens and now Latinos and Asian Americans feared for their lives for exercising their right to vote. And these feelings can be directly attributed to, to President, former President Trump's sending signals to groups such as Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Militias, and others that he was on their side and wanted them to be poll watchers at voting sites. Despite this, Americans and communities of Americans of color turned out in record numbers in this presidential election. But you know, rebuilding trust and letting go of fears of physical harm by communities of color are gonna be difficult to address. One area that folks are gonna be watching is how the Department of Justice handles the prosecution of the insurrectionist. If you remember, and maybe you don't, that some of the Black Lives Matters protesters were held on million dollar bonds while some of the individuals that took part in the insurrection have been released on minimal bonds. Now, granted, some are being held without bond, but the final outcomes of how these individuals are charged and handled by the criminal justice system is gonna tell us something about whether racial justice is even a possibility. Yet there are some kind of low hanging fruit things that, that, that President Biden can do legislatively that may get us started on a path 
you know, to racial reconciliation, racial justice. And the first thing is to get both houses of Congress to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act that would restore the original 1965 Voting Rights Act that was gutted by the Supreme Court in 2013. The House passed this legislation in 2019, but then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell would not bring it to the floor for a vote. A vote. Given the change in control of the Senate, this bill might easily clear the Senate, go to President Biden to sign and become law. Now, this legislation is needed in states where Blacks, Latinos, and other communities of color actively registered people to vote. And Georgia is a case in point because Georgia made it possible for Biden to win the state and for two Democrats to be elected to the Senate. But Republican legislatures are already trying to put measures in place to restrict the ability of communities of color to cast their votes in the future. In Georgia, you know, the current Secretary of State has been cast as a hero, and he was right for not bending to President Trump's attempts to steal the election. Um, but he is supportive of getting rid of no excuse absentee voting. You know, so if in fact the John Lewis um, Voting Rights Act passes, it will cut off Republican state legislatures from attempting to roll back the ability of communities of color to vote based on the outcome of this um, uh, last election. Another thing that Biden already did yesterday after only being in office for less than a day is to disband this abominable 1776 commission that was formed to counter the New York Times 1619 project. The commission issued its report, and I put it in quotes on Martin Luther King Day, but it is nothing but a piece of right-wing propaganda with no citations, no historians on the commission. And it basically says that slavery was no big deal. Other societies did it, so why should we be concerned? It is a racist, anti-citizens of color and a disgrace, but Despite Biden's dismissal of the commission and the retracting of the report, one can see state education commissions in states like Texas mandating at this report, and it's a glossy report. It's got a picture of Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass that this document be used in history classes. I'm not sure there's much that the Biden administration can do about what state education commissions might do, but the fact that it no longer has the imprimatur of the United States government might shortchange that. So I'll stop there. Paula, thanks um, very much. And, and especially for addressing um, on things that, that Biden um, might do that are in the category that you put as low hanging fruit. Um, voter disenfranchisement, I would like, I'm hoping to return to the issue of police reform, which is a heavier lift. And, but it seems that he's, he's really put that on the agenda for his administration. And so hopefully we'll have a chance to, to return to that. Um, Des, I'm going to turn to you. Here we are where we are in the UK. Uh, you're here with um, Mark and, uh, and me and I, I could swear that I heard a huge sigh of relief when, when both Biden and Harris were sworn in yesterday over here. 
And so I'd like to get your thoughts on, you know, what you see as the, the biggest challenges going forward for, for Biden in these next few weeks and months and, and in the United States more generally. Okay, Peter, thank you very much. And thank you for the invitation. Um, the exam question that Peter said to us all was <laughs> the biggest challenge facing the U.S. and what can President Biden do about it? Um, looking for a single answer, I think. And my single answer is Biden's biggest challenge will be whether he can govern through the U.S.'s polarized and racialized institutions to deliver measurable policy outcomes in the areas particularly of income inequality and racial equality. Um, so it's already been hinted at by, by, by um, other panelists, but I think this is the problem he faces. And I think it amounts, I'm going to be very crude and, and reduce it to two principal challenges of government. First of all, he has slim majorities in the House and Senate, which is promising for getting budgetary bills through, and he'll be able to do that because he can enact it in the Senate with 51 to 50. But for major legislation of the sort Paula has been talking about, the threat of a filibuster and the need to get 60 supporting votes is a formidable obstacle. Uh, so he would need this on voting, or the filibuster could be exercised on voting rights, the John Lewis Act, on police reform that Peter's just mentioned, healthcare reform, even on the major pandemic um, relief infrastructure program, and certainly on the bill for citizenship, which he sent to the Congress yesterday, which is to set out a pathway for uh, the 11 million illegal citizen, uh, residents to, to reach citizenship. I think understanding the scale of this problem is, is, is probably hard for us to get 24 hours after the, the election. Presidential power is, is difficult to exercise in terms of getting real outcomes. And the question, I think, is the deep polarization and whether the Republicans have any incentive to cooperate. Can he peel off the necessary eight or nine Republican senators for key votes? Mitch McConnell's record indicates that he will delay when he can. That's his, that's his record. He's been doing that for a long time. The Republican Party itself has to decide whether it remains the party of uh, disruptors created by Newt Gingrich in the 1990s, which culminated in Trump's election, or does it want to be a pragmatic party? What are the incentives for it to be pragmatic? We'll have to see whether there's a, um, uh, there's a, there's a change in the party, whether it wants to shift. Biden also faces, and this has been also been mentioned, faces a wall of opposition in the Supreme Court, where one-term President Trump had the remarkable opportunity to nominate and get um, uh, appointed three Supreme Court justices. We have many presidents who served for eight years and perhaps had only one or two opportunities. Uh, and this Supreme Court has an ideological majority, a very, very firm ideological majority opposed to reform. The only bright light on the court is that Trump appointed justices who do support the unitary executive theory, which is about the power of the president, which could help to protect some of Biden's executive orders and other measures. But, but what he faces there is very, very tough. And I think the question back to um, Roosevelt's um, uh, efforts to think about the Supreme Court will recur. The second big challenge is to have some measurable policy outcomes in two key areas. And it's going to be very hard to deliver them. The first, which Paul has already mentioned, is, is racial equality. 
Um, there's a there is just such huge demand for uh, change and reform on so many levels, and exasperated by the way in which Trump ran his campaign as a white protectionist um, uh, American. Um, the president has already designated Susan Rice to be he- who's head of the Domestic Policy Council and a very experienced um, uh, politi- bureaucrat and politician to be leader of a robust interagency effort requiring all federal agencies to make rooting out systemic racism central to their work. And it goes on and gives various lists there. I rather worry this is, this is lip service rather than punch. And that is going to be the key question, I think, for a lot of um, African-American supporters of the Democratic president at this point. Um, it's, it's, it takes real action and real measures, more than promises to reduce barriers to opportunity. We need to see the actual outcomes, the changes in the um, profile of institutions. And we know American whites hate such programs, things like affirmative action, which would require real efforts. And indeed, a majority of whites uh, believe they are more discriminated against than African-Americans, or at least the majority of Trump's white supporters, I should say. Uh, And we've just seen how how much this interest fueled the Trump base. But the crisis in racial inequality is really quite searing, and it's awfully important. Just to think about the pandemic, people of color are up to twice twice as likely to catch COVID than white people and up to three times more likely to die, according to federal official data from the CDC. Far more businesses owned by Black, Hispanic, and Asian people than by whites have closed during the lockdown. As the brilliant Princeton scholar Kianga Taylor wrote in an op-ed in the New York Times, the state is failing Black people. And failures, if they're not addressed, will disappoint enormously in terms of the question of the challenges. Briefly and quickly, the other big challenge is economic inequality, which is related to this, um, to this issue. We have 10 million people, more people unemployed than a year ago. Um, we have an economy which is um, really quite skewed and divided and calibrated in strange ways. The stock market is doing extraordinarily well. Um, U.S. stock markets are up more than 75% since the low in March. Um, And corporate debt spreads are um, back at pre-COVID levels. This is not the real economy for a lot of other people, however, for whom economic opportunity is very, very limited at the moment. And these two different trends are producing uh, what's being referred to as the K-shaped recovery. The fortunes of those already at the top are bounding swiftly upwards, while those at the bottom remain on a downward slope without a clear end in sight. That's the second big challenge in in respect to uh, inequality. I'll stop there. Thank you, Peter. Yes, you get very high marks. So (laughs) that's a terrific set of comments. Um, Okay, thank you. (laughs) I passed the exam. (laughs) So... Look, we, we, this is a great start, and we've got over 500 people on the platform. I should tell you, they're from, geez, we're, we, you know, one of the things about the LSE platform is it brings people in from all over. We've got people from, the, from Pakistan, Slovakia, Colombia, China, Belgium, 
Johannesburg, um, uh, South Africa, Brazil, and the United States, um, along with the UK. I'm gonna jump in and take some of these questions because there's already 45 questions in the Q&A. Um, so you guys have, you've really provoked uh, the audience. You've generated uh, uh, just a raft of questions here. And I'm gonna start with one from um, Kiran Nagra, who is a, um, an undergraduate in the government department here uh, at the LSC. And it's a, it's a broad question and it, it, she asks, what, what structural factors do you think have contributed to the current polarization, tension and instability uh, in the US today? So kind of stepping back um, and addressing this kind of the, perhaps the deeper um, structural uh, roots. I think many of these things came up in the already in your, your comments, but it would be good to have those um, maybe fleshed out a bit more. And so this is an opportunity to take another bite at that apple. Um, a question here from um, uh, Adam McRae, who is uh, a, an LSE alum, um, an MSC alum, I'm not sure in which department. Um, how will the Biden administration, um, Mark, this is, uh, I think this question has you written all over it. How will the Biden administration balance the equal considerations or the consideration of pragmatism versus principle in foreign policy? So with respect to Russia, perhaps the start negotiations versus speaking out on the arrest of um, Navalny and um, or in China in the case of the plight of the Uyghurs uh, versus working with Beijing on on climate change. And let me add one additional question here from um, from William Smith. Um, I'm not sure where William is from, but um, what is the future of misinformation, conspiracy theories, and trust in government um, more generally? And perhaps here, maybe I, I see that there are some other questions here on the question of the role of kind of social media and media more generally um, in fueling mistrust in the United States and disinformation. So three very big questions, one structural about the sources of polarization, another about balancing pragmatism and principle in US foreign policy, and a third on the sources of mistrust and disinformation in the United States. Um, Mark, maybe I'll ask you to take that foreign policy question and get us started there and, and we can open it up and, and you, you all should feel free to jump in as you, uh, as you see fit. Uh, sure, Peter. Uh, thank you. Uh, well, obviously, it's a it's a it's a good question and one that is as relevant to the Biden administration as to any of the preceding administrations, since that balancing act is a, a perennial one. Um, I guess I would answer it by saying um, uh, merely because Biden is following a president who approached foreign policy almost from a purely transactional point of view, um, 
it, it will appear that the Biden administration uh, acts more on principle. Um, and we will probably see many more public expressions of concern about uh, human rights abuses and autocracy and, and, uh, and um, threats to democratic rights overseas from Joe Biden, certainly, than we ever did uh, from Donald Trump. Um, one of the interesting things about the Trump administration was there was a real um, dichotomy between sometimes between the administration and the way it dealt with these issues and the president himself, which is to say that the administration sanctioned Russia, uh, expelled Russian diplomats, um, issued a, a flurry of statements about the need for uh, free and, and democratic elections overseas, uh, did many of the things that other administrations did, um, but the president himself uh, almost never personally champion those those causes, uh, often because he was worried about um, threatening a relationship with one autocratic leader or another. So you had this strange um, dichotomy between a White House that uh, basically declared in its final day in office that the Chinese were guilty of genocide against the Uyghurs, uh, led by a president uh, who who once said that he thought setting up uh, internment camps for Uyghurs wasn't a terrible idea. Um, what you will see, obviously, is much more of a consistent approach uh, in that the president will also be a proponent of what his administration institutionally calls for. Um, I mean, I guess the one other point I would I would make about this is um, I'm not sure principle and pragmatism are, are necessarily opposed to one another. In some cases, principle and pragmatism follow hand in hand. Uh, and I think that uh, the United States uh, reassuming a more vigorous role as a proponent of democracy can also be in its pragmatic uh, self-interest in many parts of the world. Um, and I think that you will see much more of that uh, in, in Asia policy, uh, among other things. Um, I would I would also also acknowledge, however, um, that the, the Obama administration uh, sometimes fell down in this regard as well. And so there will be plenty of moments, I, I am sure, uh, when uh, the Biden administration will be engaged in a negotiation with a country on an important issue and will perhaps not highlight as vigorously or as prominently uh, something that regime uh, is involved in. Uh, you know, so that kind of pragmatism uh, and that kind of uh, trade-off is a feature. It's a it's a it's a perennial feature of American foreign policy. I remember covering in the when I covered the Obama White House, uh, and and they released the State Department cables when Julian Assange did the world the favor of releasing twenty two hundred fifty thousand confidential cables. Uh, there were many cables from uh, frustrated diplomats in the Middle East and elsewhere. Uh, who wondered why the White House wasn't taking a stronger line against um, abusive behavior um, or autocratic tendencies in various countries. And the answer was, uh, we had other fish to fry with, uh, with a number of those countries. So uh, it will be a balance, as it always is, um, but with a very important difference, which is you now have a president who will be in tune with his administration, the administration will speak with a coordinated voice 
and I think that um, you won't have this kind of um, cognitive dissonance that we had for the past four years uh, between the State Department on the one hand and the president on the other hand. That's great. And to actually go back to your earlier comment, too, this is, would seem to be a very good way pushing on the principal questions in human rights for Biden to reconnect with America's traditional allies, especially along the transatlantic axis. Um, I think people are here are really looking for the administration to pick up America's game on this front. I'd, I'd like to turn to this question about the deep sources, I suppose, the, of polarization um, in the United States and tension. Um, Data, maybe I'd start with you on this, but really this is just kind of wide open. I know that you've kind of written about, you know, um, uh, in, in some detail about uh, the, the Tea Party and the kind of forerunner of, um, you know, what we see or have seen in the Republican Party. But um, really, you, Paula, and Des have all spoken to this issue. Some thoughts on this for, we've got a, a number of questions that speak to this. Where did this come from? Why is the United States so deeply, deeply torn? All right, well, um, you know, polarization has been unfolding in the United States in a rightward tilted way, uh, which takes the form of the Republican Party in particular never being able to go far enough to the right and blowing up the median voter theory completely uh, in the political science. <laughs> That's been going on since the 1980s. But I, just to talk about the iteration that has unfolded in the early 21st century, um, I think we have to keep something always in mind about the U.S. political system. It is a federated political system in which the president is not elected nationally, but through the Electoral College. The Senate is heavily skewed in the direction of states with small populations. And um, there has always been, from the beginning of the United States, a tension between metropolitan centers of economic innovation, uh, urban concentration, and international outlook, and um, the way in which the political system privileges less metropolitan areas. But that contradiction has come to a new head in the current period. That means that Republicans who um, align themselves with resistance to the civil rights revolution from the 1980s on have very strong temptations to engage in a politics of constitutional manipulation to entrench their rule uh, as a minority that excludes uh, voters of color, but also young voters, frankly, uh, and, and voters in urban areas. And those temptations have now spilled over into a temptation to go all the way towards simply abrogating electoral outcomes after they happen, not simply manipulating electoral access before the point. 
And I would just say that the Republican Party now is the thing to keep an eye on. It's not just how many Americans have racist anxieties, anger, or fear about immigration. Those things have come came to a head after Barack Obama was elected president and at the tail end of a period of rapid immigration into the United States, which went from 1965 until um, about 2007. Uh, the United States always has periods of, of reaction uh, whenever African-Americans gain political power. And it always has uh, periods of, 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 of uh, xenophobia uh, at the end of periods of rapid immigration. Now, it happened that they came together uh, in, 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 in recent times. But it's very much magnified by the temptations and the opportunities the institutional system offers to the Republican Party. So at this point, and I'll end here for now, the Republican Party consists not of moderates. I mean, you'll hear the word moderate used. I mean, the New York Times reinvents moderation further to the right every after every election cycle. But there really are only a couple of moderates at most, if, if that, in, in, the, in the Republican Party in the sense that would have made any sense as recently as McCain or um, Nixon. Uh, there are two varieties of conservatives now. Uh, there are the constitutional manipulators who understand that the federated system and the electoral college are crucial tools in their ability to manipulate voting access. And there are the constitutional overthrowers now. And that's the drama that we just saw played out. The reason you're seeing um, people in the Senate like Mitch McConnell saying it goes too far to say that we're gonna throw out the vote after the fact is he wants to stick to being able to manipulate the rules of voter access state by state. And much as I would like to agree with uh, Professor McLean, McCain that it's going to be easy to get the Voting Rights Act through the Senate, that's the last thing that either of these two factions of the GOP is going to put through because they, the, the, the ones who don't like storming the Capitol, want to fall back on changing the rules of ballot access uh, in the state by state. And furthermore, I think they're going to fall back on the idea of redefining the Electoral College so that particular uh, congressional districts uh, control the Electoral College rather than state by state. That proposal has already been put on the table in the state of Wisconsin. And if it had been in place, would have thrown the state of Wisconsin to, um, to Trump. So that's that it's the structural opportunities are built in, but they're interacting with the new cultural and demographic forces of our time in a way that produces a more explosive outcome than any time since 1860. So Des, I want to come to you, but Paula, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Yeah, no, I think, you know, I mean, Thayer's right. I said low hanging fruit. Right. And I was yeah. thinking more in terms of the fact that it had never come up right in the yeah, Senate. It'll come maybe, up. maybe this time it will come up and maybe there will be 10 Republicans. Because the voting rights in the past had always been a bipartisan issue. I mean, there were always the others. But but, you know, the last time it was it was renewed 25 for 25 years, I guess, was under Bush. Um, 
there were Republicans that that joined in. Now, maybe there aren't 10, but I'd like to think that there might be 10 that would see the passing of this bill, you know, to restore voting rights as being important. Now, maybe they're not. I guess the Josh Hawley's of the world and the Ted Cruz's, you know. Um, no, Mitch McConnell's not going to want to pass it in a, in a form that creates any federal reinforcement for limiting or level manipulation. So maybe they'll water it down and pass it. And you're right, it'll come up. But it's it's not, I, I, I'd be very surprised. You can hold me to that. I'd be very surprised. I want, I want to bring... Des in as well here. Um, okay. Go ahead. I, I mean, I'm with, I mean, I'm, I, I hope Paul is right. I mean, I, I um, just on the specific ones, I mean, I, I feel from the beginning um, that the Republic, the filibuster is going to be mobilized against a lot of legislation um, by the, by the, sure. and there it's going to make it very difficult for governing and, and getting these sorts of reforms through, but that reflects the structural context which is this brutal division um, between the the uh, between the two sides? The polarization in, in the U.S. is is is. I quite agree with Peter that it's it's you know it's not historically unique, but it's it's a it's a it's a very strong um, uh, form of it at the moment. I mean, I think what's different this time is I want to suggest um, two things are different. One is. Uh, Trump got 75 million votes, which was 5 million more than he got in 2016. He got the second most votes of any presidential candidate ever in the US. Biden got the most. Any president. So it's a remarkable election. It's a remarkable turnout. And that, I think, is, is, is good news for us. But 75 million, and 5 million of these came back. They, 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 they liked him more than they did in 2016. Um, that seems to me very, that has to be explained in some ways. We have to think about that. And there are lots of explanations out there. We know that. But, but for me, it has a lot to do with, the, um, with, with America's racial divides, which, have, which are exas exasperated by these three institutions of the Supreme Court, which has life tenure, but the Senate, which represents all the, the way uh, smaller, states, <clears throat> smaller states have equal power, and the Electoral College. And none of those are going away. None of those are going to be reformed fundamentally. So the image of uh, a white and increasingly Christian base for that Republican movement are, are going to continue. I think what has changed, and this gets us into the third question that people have raised, um, you know, which is which is the role of the internet and in information. Um, and I th think this is a difference. So. When I wrote about, when I thought about these things in the 1990s, for instance, white supremacists existed in America, but there was a very fringe group. The internet, in my view, has given them the opportunity to find out about each other, to meet each other, and to organize. And this covers both the sort of individual acts of, of brutality by, uh, such as we had in Charleston, um, and the collective events that we had in Charlottesville in 2017 and in Washington two weeks ago, yesterday. Um, there is an organizational capacity which was not there before, which is an opportunity. And, and probably it's been helped by certain sorts of, um, uh, certain sorts of grassroots organizations connected to the Tea Party and other groups and the sorts of things that, uh, that Theta has studied very, very carefully and very helpfully. 
Um, the, 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 the breakdown of the way information is provided and thought about and assessed as accurate in, or inaccurate or factual or infactual, unfactual is, I think, fundamental. And that's not unique to the United States, but it has been taken in certain directions there. I think, it's, I think you can see the same in, 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 in other countries. Um, so, so getting at all of this, to me, it's the, 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 the racial polarization which grew rapidly with Obama obtaining the presidency, attaining the presidency, is crucial to understanding what's going on now. Um, and that's a fundamental source of this polarization. I think the public opinion polls show that. Um, there's also very interesting research coming out, I'll, I'll stop in a second, Peter, by, by political scientists. Um, uh, I don't know, there's a, talking about the, the, the millennial generation. And if, you, if we look at their attitudes, um, they're not particularly different in terms of issues um, about racism and prejudice to earlier generations. But they've been formed in an era when civil rights was sort of forgotten about. Uh, that was something that happened historically. And that, uh, that era seems to have allowed the, the recurrence of um, attitudes and practices and positions that um, I think a lot, probably a lot of experts and political scientists thought would have to some extent. They seem not to. I think it's very hard, and I, I'm not going to characterize any of the Republicans uh, in the Senate as racist because I have no idea whether they're racist or not. I think it's very hard to understand what some of the, um, the elite Republican senators were doing last week or, or two weeks ago in the, in the Senate. It's very hard to understand that without seeing it as an opportunistic or deep-rooted wish to mobilize and to exasperate tensions um, in a way for political gain. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, I don't think it's hard to understand what Josh Hawley is doing at all. He wants to inherit the Trumpist base that's enough to win the um, nomination of the Republican Party. It is not enough to win a general election unless you exclude large number of voters. And just let me interject something that I just, I, 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 this is something Des and I disagree on. 75 million Americans are not racist. No, I didn't say they were. I didn't say they were. Racist. And I don't think it's useful to talk about people's motives, actually. I think racism is much more a series of structured practices and assumptions and by that definition, there certainly are a lot of people who are very, very worried about racial and immigration-related changes in the United States. But they live disproportionately in non-metropolitan areas where they are surrounded by others that they think, think like them. Mm -hmm. And major life experiences are organized around increasingly right-wing and authoritarian Christian nationalist churches. And by the way, not, that's not all Christians in America. Um, the Christian uh, moderates and left are very mobilized now, and that's part of what happened in this last election. Um, I like to say that what's going on in the United States right now is not only a fight between generations and racial and ethnic groups, it's a civil war inside the white middle class about whether or not to accept 
the transformations that are ongoing in a new version of a democratic, small d, democratic America. And that fight is very much one that's pitting suburban metropolitan areas against exurban and rural areas. And it is heightened turnout in suburban metropolitan areas among college credentialed people of all races, but many of them whites, that delivered the, the House of Representatives to the Democrats in 2018 and delivered the presidency to Joe Biden in 2020. I want to move to the next round if I can, although, Paula, I'm, if you've got some comments on, on anything else that you want to add. Um, well, we didn't, I guess, picking up on a point about um, Des in terms of the Internet and its ability yeah. to kind of organize people. You know, I think another part of that is when the misinformation and disinformation comes from your government yeah. to the public, it becomes difficult to, to, to kind of block that out when all you're getting from your governmental institutions that you're supposed to trust are lies, you know? And so maybe, I mean, if, if um, what did Jen, you know, Jen Psaki said last night that they're going to, you know, truth is back, basically, maybe some of the disinformation will filter away. But if people don't believe anymore what the government says, then it's still going to be very, very difficult. And I think mm. we do have to hold the, the people that own these platforms somewhat responsible, you know, for kind of letting this fester mm -hmm. without any kind of, you know, of controls when, you know, when the, the, you know, the aim was we make more money, right? If we kind of let this go yeah. and this is where we end up, right? right? This is the outcome of this. And what was a report the other day that when um, Trump was banned from Twitter and Facebook, disinformation on the election has gone down 73%. They should have done that right after the election or at least after November uh, 14th. So we have, we've got a lot of questions. They're still coming in. Um, and in a sense, there's a cluster of questions here that are kind of the flip of polarization. Um, they have to do with kind of the possibilities for change in the American party system. Tom Kern, who's the uh, chair of the LSE Alumni Association and a former, uh, got an, an MSc in government here at the LSE, Ask, is there any likelihood of a split or a realignment of parties in the coming years? And let me let me add to that and, and ask specifically here about um, and Theta, at one point you 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 talked about this, that that you know we need to talk about the Republican Party. I mean, when we think about the future of it, if 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 Trump foments a civil war within the Republican party, but he's talking now about creating a new party and so forth. I mean, does it, does it go the way of the Whigs or are what we going to see is McConnell and others trying to reunite the base and pivot away from Trump by picking out a few signature issues 
to focus on, um, much like he did after Barack Obama won the presidency in 2008. It was a very kind of deliberate um, strategy. And, uh, you know, I, I, so I think one question here is about the cleavage that, you know, is there a cleavage? Trump's actions from a distance could could they like actually exacerbate the tensions that we that we have seen? Um, a second question, and maybe the flip of this, is asked by. Um, um, let me get to uh, Alex Soden from Hackney in North London, which asks about the what the Biden administration needs to do to hold together its fairly diverse, I mean, it's a pretty diverse coalition of progressives, moderate Democrats, and never Trump Republicans who arguably made a difference in some of those swing states that, you know, that made the difference in the outcome. Um, where they, where it was very tight, and if forty thousand votes had gone a different way, we might be having a different conversation this evening. So I, I think you know there's a couple questions here about the possibilities of of restructuring the parties and what we might expect from the Republicans and what Biden actually has to be concerned about with respect to let's say his progressive wing going forward. The floor is open here. Anybody want to take a bite at this apple? Yeah, I will. And then I'm sure others will jump in. Um, you know, I actually think the tightness of the margins that the Democrats have um, are going to conduce to a focusing of the mind from AFC to Joe Manchin mm. on uh, common ground. And there's so much common ground that... Um, can be worked out. For example, you can use the reconciliation budget process with some yeah. changes ultimately right. to beef up the coverage and the subsidy under Obamacare uh, in a way that'll put it on a path to single payer within one decade. I, I, I expect to see that down the line. Mm -hmm. There uh, is such, um, Joe Manchin has said, for example, he doesn't want a $2,000 <coughs> payment. Yeah, he'll come around on that when it's a question of delivering a lot of uh, economic help to the state of West Virginia to, to uh, administer the the, um, the the vaccine and and get economic help out there. I think the Democrats have learned some lessons from the Obama era. I think Joe Biden is anything but mushy. You have watched him get more and more definite, and there were plenty of things in that address yesterday that were fighting tough. Uh, in addition to being, um, and Joe, uh, and Senator Schumer, the, the majority leader, has just refused to write the filibuster into the two-year rules for the next mm. year. He doesn't have the votes to get rid of the filibuster, but if the if McConnell adopts a, an obstruct-everything approach and he holds his party, which I suspect he cannot do, then uh, you will see even Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema from Arizona come around on modifying parts of the filibuster rules. So I, I just think that the problems of unity are more on the GOP side, but let me just say something. Donald Trump may talk about creating a new party, but the man is far too lazy to create anything of that organizational complexity. 
And there really are powerful, powerful structural incentives in the U.S. system to somehow paste together two parties. Um, breakaway movements uh, do not succeed in, in U.S. politics since the demise of the Whigs. And we really are going to see more of, of something I want people to pay attention to in Alaska, which is the passing of rules that create four people who go to the general election without having to pass through a primary. That's why you're going to see Lisa Murkowski increasingly voting with the Democrats. She doesn't face a primary threat from the right. And with the growth of independent identifiers in the United States, and they are growing by leaps and bounds, I think you're going to see more and more states go like Alaska and Maine in the direction of reducing the incentives for the extremes to take over in the primaries. Okay, great. Paula, you want to... Can I, can I just say something? Um, so I, I, I think these are great questions, Peter. And I, I think there's going to be a... Um, a terrible tension within the Democrats uh, about dealing with the pandemic and the related economic crisis versus the issues of inequality reduction. And I think this is where um, their base is divided and there's, there's going to be disappointment. And I think within the Democratic Party, within Congress, it's partly the, gen the significant generational divide that people have between a young, more progressive, radical reformers and those who want to get things done in the short term. And I think the pandemic issue is so, is so pressing, that's going to give us some momentum to um, uh, a unified front and moving ahead. And one of the things which will be so crucial there, I think related to Paula's point about information from the government is, is restoring the value of expertise. Mm -hmm. I think that's gonna take a while with the public because it's been so damaged um, and getting the public to, um, to accept that there are experts and that it's valid information. And when you're given advice about social distancing or mask wearing and so forth, this is not a conspiracy. It's not a way of making the government uh, become Orwellian. It's a way of trying to improve public health and tackle the pandemic. And that's quite a challenge that's there. Um, but I, and I, I agree that I don't think the... Um, I don't think that I, I think Trump might the Trumpism Trump will will fade. I'm, I, the question is what will happen to Trumpism, mm -hmm. and a lot of these Republicans think they've done well out of it. They got an extra five million votes in this election, so why would they rush away from it? Yeah, they won't. Paula, the only thing in mine is more of a question um, that, given the the narrowness of the margin of the Democrats in the House and the election of the fringe candidates on the Republican side. Will that temper what the progressives in the House might be willing to do because they may foresee that they could cause a loss of the House altogether and that these fringe elements may in fact increase if they don't hold or stick as closely to the party as possible. I don't know. It's just something that I've thought about as to whether or not the fringe candidates actually will have a coalescing effect on the part of the progressives cleaving more to the Democratic leadership 
than they might have otherwise if their margins were larger. I think the progressives have to see um, results. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, yeah. I think the progressives, Paula, have to see results to be uh, willing to, to, to sort of stick together and not push things to the side. And, and I'm sure they'll give it six months, eight months. Uh, but then I think they have to see there, there's been, we can't we just can't forget the really powerful movement for Black Lives that's been going on for ten months and has a has a couple of real agenda items about voting about police reform, mm -hmm. um, uh, incarceration about and ultimately about uh, income equality as well. Um, so that's that's the tension that's going to going to emerge I think over the course of the 12 months next 12 maybe worried that they only have an 18 month window because the yeah. Democrats will lose you probably lose seats in the midterms so we better hope that they do not I know yes. the, Democrats, the Democrats have to reverse the usual midterm right. pattern um, uh, or Biden's presidency will be a failure and the fire right will be back in 2024 look I I, d I hope we don't overestimate the progressives. The progressives in the Democratic Party are on Twitter and they're constantly on the media. And for good reason. AOC is brilliant and, 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 and articulate, but there are maybe six of them. They simply are not the, they are not the equivalent of the Freedom Caucus in the Republican Party. Right, yep. They cannot topple the Democratic leadership, and if they were trying, it would be a kamikaze mission for democracy in America. They know that. They're not going to do that. Uh, so on the other hand, I think being able to set the agenda, being able to set the terms of compromises, which is what the Democrats can do, will enable them to work quite a few redistributive elements into the pandemic response. And uh, being able to... Mm on the desire of many Republican governors to get relief will give them some of the leverage they need, perhaps, to get some of this through the Senate. So, Mark, um, do you want to comment here, um, which would be great? I also want to get, I've got a number of questions about what does this mean for the UK and trade agreement going forward, and I do want to address that. But some <laughs> thoughts about this before we move on? Hmm. Uh, well, I, the one thing I would say is, is um, Des sort of said a few minutes ago, Trump will fade, but Trumpism won't uh, necessarily fade. I, I don't necessarily disagree, but I think that we don't really know what Trump is gonna, going to become, and it's a fascinating question. I mean, maybe he'll start um, a, a cable network to the right of Fox, um, but I, I, I do think that Trump is such a... Uh, uh, volatile figure that it, we shouldn't just assume he's going to fade. Um, I mean, there is this valid question of whether Trumpism can be led by anyone other than Trump, whether Trump was the magic element. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, you know, Josh Hawley is the Republican nominee yeah. will just not have that kind of visceral appeal that Donald Trump had. I, I tend to fall into that camp. I can't see anyone on the political landscape other than Donald Trump that will get that particular 74.2 million. I always like to point out he loves rounding it up to 75. It's actually <laughs> 0.2 million people who voted for him. Um, so I, I do, and I'm, I'm myself just, I think one of the interesting political stories of this year is whether being, having been deplatformed 
uh, he actually fades away much quicker than we ever thought and becomes sort of a curiosity or whether he somehow finds a way to stay relevant um, and, and emerge as some sort of a powerful kingmaker. And I, I just don't know the answer to that. Okay, I got three very different questions here. Um, one, um, uh, well, one, it, many people are asking about what Biden's election will mean for a possible, in, in light of Brexit, um, mean for a U.S.-U.K. trade agreement. And of course, the news today, there's a tizzy about, uh, the, you know, that Biden um, removed uh, Churchill's, um, uh, the, the bust of <laughs> Churchill, and it is, is front page uh, news in the, in the U.K., um, so I think, you know, one question, Mark, which I, hopefully you can take the lead on is what happens to the UK-US relationship, the special relationship trade, but beyond trade going forward? Do people have reason to be pessimistic or should they be more optimistic about maybe not with respect to trade, but the relationship more generally? A second question, a series of them, what do you think will happen with Trump's impeachment. Will Pelosi send over the articles of impeachment? Can we expect many Republicans to join the Democrats in pursuing conviction? And how involved should Joe Biden be in this? Um, and I, I think, you know, there's a, you know, Mitch McConnell came out a couple of days ago uh, with a pretty strong statement about Trump's culpability or role in inciting the insurrection. And one wonders if he's been, he has access to intelligence information that a lot of other people don't have. So one question is just about impeachment, the democratic strategy, Biden's calling for healing. Is this consistent with a, a strategy of, of, of healing? And third, and if, you know, uh, finally, and I think this is a really valuable question that comes from um, uh, Eldred uh, Harrington, who's an organizer for um, uh, Stacey Abrams uh, in 2018. For those of us who are organizers, what's the path forward? For people down really at the grassroots, making stuff happen, what's the path forward? So three different questions. Mark, maybe you start us off with the UK sure. question. Um, well, you know, obviously there was a, a great deal of anxiety uh, in some quarters in the in the months uh, leading up to this election when it looked like Biden might win uh, about what that would mean. Um, and uh, and the, the Winston Churchill bust is sort of a, a kind of a classic uh, case where the British press will turn it into much more than it is. It's also worth remembering, by the way, that Barack Obama had that same bust removed from the Oval Office uh, when he moved in. And when he was asked about it, he said, uh, you know, if you have too many busts, it starts to look cluttered. Um, <laughs> I, I think that for the, I think that for the UK, um, it, it, it is an important change because Biden, um, opposed Brexit. He thought it was a, an ill-starred, ill-conceived effort. Uh, and he said uh, on the last visit he made to this country that it would make Britain a less valuable uh, ally for the United States because what it removes is the ability that the UK had historically to be this bridge 
between Washington and Brussels. Uh, and the UK can't play that role the way it once did. So there's, there's, there's no question that Biden uh, is skeptical of the Brexit project. And, and there is also, and this is much less important, but it's worth mentioning, there is a bit of a history uh, between Boris Johnson uh, and the Obama-Biden circle. Boris Johnson wrote a, a, a rather uh, objectionable newspaper editorial when he was the mayor of London, in which he referred to Barack Obama as having a part Kenyan's uh, colonial uh, suspicion of um, of, of uh, colonial powers like the United Kingdom. This was when Obama had come here and urged people to vote against Brexit. Uh, so there's a little bit of scar tissue that has to be cleaned up. I don't think it's a particularly big deal, but the nature of what was going to define the relationship will change. Um, had Trump been reelected, there probably would have been uh, a bilateral trade agreement. And that would have been uh, one of the great windfalls of Brexit. Uh, Boris Johnson presented this as one of the uh, great things that was going to come out of Brexit. Um, that's almost certainly not going to happen, at least not for the first couple of years. And not just because Joe Biden has a spite against the UK. Joe Biden doesn't want to do free trade agreements with anybody. Joe Biden is rethinking the very nature of trade negotiations. Uh, Jake Sullivan, his national security advisor, has written very interestingly about the need for the Democrats to rethink international economic relations. So the whole notion of an FTA is just not on the Biden administration's agenda. So forget about that. But I think the, the Johnson government has actually been uh, somewhat smart in the way they have positioned themselves in the early going with the Biden administration. They have correctly uh, surmise that there are some important areas where they can work together. Biden just rejoined the climate, uh, Paris Climate Accord. The UK will host the United Nations Climate Summit in the fall. It is a chance for Joe Biden to come and showcase the US's commitment to climate change. Uh, and Johnson's gonna give him a big stage to do that. Uh, likewise, in that area of human rights and democracy promotion we were talking about a little while ago, uh, the UK is presenting itself as a partner with the US in, uh, in upholding values, fighting for democracy, pushing back on autocratic regimes. Uh, the UK has done some admirable things in the area of offering uh, citizenship rights to people in Hong Kong uh, who might want to leave because of the imposition of a security law by the Chinese there. And so I think there is scope for the UK to carve out some areas of collaboration, cooperation. I think the, the last point I'll make is uh, Johnson's recent announcement that he was going to vastly increase defense spending in this country was a very important one because the message it sent to Joe Biden was, we are your partner in NATO in global security. We are willing uh, to do more burden sharing. This wasn't, remember, just a Donald Trump issue. He was the most uh, aggressive and antagonistic about it. But this whole question of allies doing enough to support the alliance predates Donald Trump. Barack Obama used to complain about it too. He just didn't get anywhere. Um, Boris Johnson is saying we will do more. And so I think the relationship will have to evolve. Trade can't be the centerpiece of it because it's not in the cards, but there are other areas, climate, democracy promotion, human rights, and security where the US and the UK 
uh, can still have a strong relationship. And the, and, the, and the Brits just simply have to not sweat it if, uh, if Joe Biden's first stop in Europe uh, is in uh, Berlin instead of London. I would just would not read too much into it. Okay, very good. Listen, we've got, we've got about 10 minutes left. So first, I want to welcome folks from Vietnam, Uganda, Benin, Lebanon, Greece, and Nigeria. We've got quite a, quite a spread uh, this evening. I would like, if we can, within five minutes, to pick up, to deal with the impeachment question, and also to go to this question about um, organizers. Um, and, I, and then I would like to end with two very quick lightning rounds. So kind of, um, you know, multiple choice. Um, so uh, I don't know. Um, Paula, do you have a thought about, um, about this question of what organizers, people who work with Stacey Abrams or on the other side, where, where should they be kind of investing their time? What should they be thinking about? And this is really open to anybody, but. Well, one is I hope they continue to keep organizing. Um, but two, I need they need to begin to hold people accountable, okay. you know, that they turned out the vote for Ossoff, Warnock, others. Biden need to hold them accountable in various ways, whether it's it's their vote, whether it's 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 pushing them on policy. But it was the organizing that did this. Yeah. Right. That's what did this. And they need to be thanked because that was a major operation. But they now they need to hold people accountable, continue to organize, continue to turn people out to vote. Thoughts on impeachment? I don't know. You know? Um, Anybody then. Yeah, go ahead, Paula. Yeah. No, well, I was just going to say in terms of, you know, what Biden, what Biden's going to do. I listened very carefully to Jen Psaki this morning on an interview on one of the shows. And on the one hand, she said that Biden wants she was in the Senate. He knows the Senate. It'll be the Senate's responsibility. But then she said, basically, Trump needs to be held accountable. OK, so um, whether or not there's 17 Republicans that would vote to convict and McConnell doesn't have the control over his conference that he had before. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think Pelosi will send the articles over, but I'm sure she's negotiating with Chuck Schumer as to exactly when's the best time to do that. Any other thoughts on these questions? Well, yeah, I, I, I have on both of them. I, you know, I don't think that, I think Biden has sign signaled very clearly that he is not going to take responsibility for making impeachment conviction arguments. I do think that articles will be uh, delivered, hopefully not until after they've confirmed a few more members of the cabinet, but um, I expect a short trial and I do not think the Republicans will muster 17 people to convict. And, uh, just to make a Machiavellian comment, if you're a Democrat, that's not such a bad outcome because it leaves the Republican party roiled between its Trumpist loyalists and the people who recognize that some of the key Senate elections they face and the House elections in two years are going to depend on moderate suburbanites um, uh, to, to who reject uh, the, the increasingly uh, violent face of Trumpism. 
the only thing I want to say about organizing is, boy, has this been a period. Donald Trump has been awful in many ways for American democracy. But there is one respect in which he's been wonderful. He has provoked the highest every time he gives a rally, and that's included in North Georgia. More people turn out against him than turn out for him. And, you know, women across the United States created two to 3,000 regularly meeting citizens groups after the 2016 election, which have remained active through 2018 and into 2020. Stacey Abrams and the network of groups that she has nourished at the grassroots, many of them with co-ethnics for particular ethnic groups and reaching into the rural counties of Georgia. That is so important and that's so different for example, than apparently in North Carolina. That was a 10-year project, but it generated higher turnouts for Ossoff and, and Warnock by far than Biden got in almost all the counties across Georgia. She, They have come up with a formula, these two prongs of organizing that have to do with face-to-face -face contact in your local area that are the key to any hope the Democrats have of running against the tide of reversals in 2022 and into 2024. Yes, before I get to my final question, we've only got a few minutes. Do you have a thought that you want to add here? Because um... I think we don't know whether there's going to be impeachment. Um, and I mean, I was going to say my final comment about, about the, what's going on with the Senate at the moment, because there has to be an agreement for the next two years how to operate. And the... Um, Republicans aren't agreeing to that unless the filibuster is retained. It won't happen. They don't agree. The Republicans remain the chairs of the committees. Um, it's a very complicated situation. I would point to the D.C. Department of Justice pursuing thoughts, charges, perhaps, about the issue of the uh, insurrection. Yeah. Let me ask. We've got three minutes left here, so you don't get a full minute. I would okay. like to try to end on a high note here and ask all of you if you could just take 30 seconds, 45 seconds, what gives you kind of hope, the most hope, when you kind of look out there, yesterday's event, just looking forward, what gives you the most hope about America going forward? Um, we will start in reverse order. Des? Why don't you start well, first, then we'll go to Paula, then we'll go to Mark and Theta. I think Biden, is, Biden and Harris are an incredibly impressive team. And I think the level of support that they generated is uh, remarkable. So it, it's a good start. Paula. For me, Kamala Harris, putting HBCUs front and center in terms of the people I'm one, in terms of the people that they produce, I, that just gives me, you know, makes me feel really good. And I love her pearls, too, so. <laughs> Mark? I think what I would say is just that by, uh, you know, as, as improbable as it seemed uh, a year ago, a little more than a year ago, when Joe Biden finished fifth in New Hampshire and looked like he was in a death spiral, the Democrats actually nominated and then the American people elected the person who I believe can perhaps pull support in from some of the skeptics, um, ha can speak with, a with an authentic, genuine sense, which I think he did yesterday, knows how the Congress works, so has a better shot at any one of 
of the other candidates of navigating that complex situation that Des was just talking about. Um, and also uh, has a, uh, a just a, a, a deeply felt understanding of, of American values and America's role in the world. Uh, and, and, and I now think, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to say Joe Biden was impressive yesterday. If you go back 18 months ago and look at how scorching the coverage was of this doddering retread and his sort of half-baked campaign, it's, to my mind, almost a miracle that we wound up with this guy at this time. Beta, you got 30 seconds. I always thought Joe Biden was the only one who could win this election for the Democrats. And he has gotten more and more effective. He, his choice of Kamala Harris is brilliant. He has the knowledge to work the Congress and to rebuild the federal agency, which is, which is crucial. But the thing that makes me most hopeful is that it is clear that over the last decade, Americans across the board who believe in democracy and believe in an equal and fair society have waked up, are organized, and I intend to stay engaged because no American president can do it alone. It takes a mass connected, continually engaged movement to do it. And I think it's possible. On that note, we're going to leave it. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a, a great pleasure to have the opportunity to listen to our distinguished panelists today. And um, I, want to, uh, I want to thank um, Paula, Theta, Mark, and Des. Many thanks to you for taking the time to share your thoughts about the Biden presidency and America's future. I'm sure our viewers found them very um, helpful, constructive, and hopeful. To everyone, from all of us at the US Center, at the LSE, stay healthy and stay safe. Folks, thank you. Bye now.